Anybody here into genealogies? I got a few of you, okay? I got to confess, I'm not really. But some of you are. You get on Ancestry.com or you go to the local libraries all over Kentucky and maybe beyond or you go visit your second cousin's aunt Susie's sister-in-law because you're trying to find out more about the family and I've just never really gotten into it personally. Even in the Bible, when I get to a genealogy in Scripture, I don't slow down and say, all right, Uh, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. I, I really don't do that. And I've memorized uh, quite a few Bible verses in my lifetime, but I don't think, Daniel, I've ever memorized a genealogy. And when I lay in bed at night and I'm kind of going through scriptures in my head, I don't meditate on genealogies in the Bible. But genealogies can be interesting. If you look closely enough in your genealogy, you might find a bank robber or a horse thief or a pirate or some colorful character in your genealogy. You might even find uh, somebody who impacted history. The name I.O. Biffle comes to mind. How many of you know I.O. Biffle? Probably not many, okay? Well, I.O. Biffle was born in 1888. He died in 1934. And at one time, he accumulated $100,000. Now, that's not a lot of money in our world today, but or his world, or our world today, but in his world, it would have been worth about $3 million. But he died nearly blind and penniless. Kyle Biffle was in the U.S. Army Air Corps. Have you ever heard of that? That preceded the U.S. Air Force. During that day, he was one of only four pilots in the U.S. Army Air Corps. That's not really why he's best known. What he's best known for is training another pilot who might be more familiar to you. The pilot that he trained how to fly was named Charles Lindbergh. Who's heard of Charles Lindbergh? Probably all of us. Charles Lindbergh is most famous for the first solo transcontinental air flight across the Atlantic Ocean when he flew from New York City to Paris, France. Now, I confess, I'm not related to I.O. Biffle. But my wife is, and so I thought that was kind of interesting. Genealogies can be interesting. The one we find here in Matthew chapter 1 be, may be the most interesting one, indefinitely the most important one in all of history, because this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew gives it from the line of Joseph, 
not because he was the biological father of Jesus, because Mary was the virgin Mary and Jesus was born of a virgin, but he was the legal father of Jesus, was Joseph. Would you mind if I read it to you? Now, it's kind of long, and in order to make it a little more interesting, I want you to look for the names of five women there. Can you do that? And when I get to the first woman, I want you to raise one finger, okay? And put your hand down. Don't want people to think we're Pentecostal. Just kidding. When I get to the next woman, raise your second finger up with your hand. The third woman, raise your hand up again with the third finger and the fourth and then the fifth. Okay, can you do that? Now, in the spirit of how I normally read genealogies, I'm going to read pretty quickly. Most of these names you will get, but there's one, perhaps the first one, that you're going to have to look for. Are you ready? Here we go. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Just checking. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. And Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the wife of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Whew! There it is. Don't clap. Now, if I memorize that by next Christmas, you can clap. All right. I'm not planning on it. There it is. We got Tamar. We got Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and last but not least, especially at Christmas, we have Mary. So why does Matthew give us this genealogy? Matthew is writing to a very Jewish audience more so than any other gospel writer. And I think Matthew wants to show Jesus was a part of Israel's history. You've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon, all these heavyweights in Jewish history in the lineage of David. All of Jewish history prepared for the coming of Jesus. And Matthew wants to remind and let the people know of that. The second reason why I think Matthew gives us this genealogy might be as an illustration of God's wonderful grace. 
In Jesus' genealogy, we find some of the most significant names in all of Jewish history. You'll also find some names of people you would not expect. Four women in particular, Tamar, Bathsheba, Ruth, and Rahab. Now, Mary obviously is not a surprise, but it was a surprise that God would call her to be the mother of the Messiah. Think about it. Mary was a wonderful, godly young lady, but she was a teenager. She came from a poor family. She was married to a carpenter. And she lived in a town called Nazareth. Say Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus would later be known as Jesus of Nazareth. But Nazareth was not a very highly respected town in their day. In fact, when Nathaniel, a would-be disciple of Jesus, first heard about Jesus, he asked this question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Meaning, it just doesn't seem very likely. It was also very unusual to find the names of women in Jewish genealogy, since names and inheritances came through the fathers. Not only were there five women, at least three, if not four of the women were Gentiles. If you were a Jew, Gentiles were considered to be inferior, religiously unclean. So let's quickly take a look at these other ladies in addition to Mary. First we have Ruth. Ruth was not a Jew. She was from Moab. But Ruth had a mother-in-law by the name of Naomi. Say Naomi with me. Naomi. And Naomi's name meant pleasantness. She was pleasant. And, uh, but Naomi had a difficult life. She lived in Bethlehem with her husband and their two sons. But one day, a famine came to Bethlehem. And so Naomi and her family moved to another country. They moved to Moab. And while they're there, her sons get married to Moabite women. And then her husband dies, and then both of her sons die. So she has no family left there except these two Moabite women. Well, the good news was Mary heard that the famine was now over in Bethlehem, so she decides, I'm going to move back home. And when she starts to move back home, both of her daughters-in-law say, we'll go with you. But... Mary or Naomi dissuades them, and the, this, one of them says, okay, I'll stay here. But Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Entreat me not to leave you. I am going with you, Naomi. When Naomi arrives in Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitterness. She's now a bitter woman. And yet God did something miraculous there, bringing along a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth end up getting married. And Ruth becomes a Gentile ancestor of Jesus. 
You also have Rahab. How many know who Rahab was in the Bible? She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. She was the one who hid the, the two spies who came to check out Jericho. But she is also in the genealogy of Jesus. You also have Bathsheba. You probably know Bathsheba. And she's most known for when David was out walking on the roof of his palace one day. He looked down. He saw a beautiful woman bathing. And who was it? It was Bathsheba. And he decided, I want her. And so he sends for her. Has a relationship with her. And then she lets him know later she's pregnant with child. So David tries to cover it up. So David has her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield. And so David is a, an adulterer and a murderer. And yet Bathsheba would have another son later. And this son would be, guess who? Solomon. And Solomon would be one of the most powerful kings who ever lived. And he would become, through David and Bathsheba, an ancestor of Jesus. And the last woman I want to mention is one that's not very well known. That's Tamar. Tamar was a daughter-in-law of Judah. And Judah was the one who the tribe of Judah was named after. You have Abraham, whose son was Isaac whose son was Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Judah, and the 12 tribes of Israel basically named after these 12 sons, and Judah is one of those sons. Well, Judah had three sons, and uh, the first one was married to Tamar. And uh, the Bible says that God killed Judah's oldest son because he was wicked, so God just killed him. So, by Jewish law, Judah is required to give Tamar a second son. So, he does. But this second son does not want to have children with Tamar because they would not be his inheritance. They would be the inheritance of his brother. And so, I won't explain all the details to you. You can look that up in Genesis chapter 38, but he refuses to have children with her. So, then he's got one more son because God killed that one because he wouldn't have kids with Tamar. Do what God commanded him to do. But Judah's like, I don't want to give her a third son. I already gave her two, and they died. So I'm not going to give her a third one. But he doesn't really say that. He just puts her off and puts her off and puts her off, and he just doesn't do anything about it. So one day, Tamar decides, I'm going to do something about it. So she changes her widow's clothes in for the clothes of a prostitute. She puts a veil on, and Judah doesn't know who she is, but he happens to be coming by her town one day. She hears he's coming, so she dresses like a prostitute. And Judah decides, I want her. And so he has a physical relationship with her. But before they do that, she says, what are you going to pay me for this? And he says, I'll pay you a goat. I guess that was a big thing back in that day. I don't think people want a goat today. But they She said, okay. But he didn't have a goat with him. So she says, what are you going to give me as a pledge? Remind me, you're going to give me the goat. He says, well, I'll give you my staff, and I'll give you my cord and my seal. And then somebody will send the goat later and get that back. So they do, and he does. Later on, about three months later, he finds out that Tamar is pregnant because she was acting like a prostitute. Judah does not know that he's the father, and he says, she needs to die. Somebody needs to burn her to death. So she says back, well, the father of this child is the one who owns this staff and this cord and this seal. And so Judah knows it's him. 
And so he says, she's more righteous than I am. But the interesting thing about that is she's pregnant not only with one child, but with two, and one of those children become one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And Jesus would be born in the tribe of Judah. I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of stuff I want to find in my family genealogy. Maybe that's one reason why I don't do it. I just don't want to know. It's probably there somewhere. But why? Why did God include all that? For one reason, I think it's a reminder that throughout history, God has used some pretty messed up people, has he not? People that we might not choose. People who may not have their act together. People who may have done things that they're not proud of in their past. But by the grace of God, they have turned from their sin and they've given their lives to Jesus Christ and God can use them in a powerful way. Amen? I think God wants to use you. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what your issues or problems are or what they have been. But if you're willing to give your past and give your sin and give your life to God, the Bible says in the 103rd Psalm, He'll take our sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered against us. That doesn't mean God doesn't discipline His children because He does. But what it does mean is that if we will confess our sin, the Bible says God is faithful and just forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think God is sending us a message through all of the dysfunction in this ancestry that God has used some pretty imperfect people throughout history. But I think a greater reason for this genealogy is it's a reminder of God's grace. This Christmas, let's remember to extend God's grace. John 3.16 says this. Say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin? And some of you might think, well, I really wasn't all that bad. Listen, compared to Jesus, we're all bad. Our righteousness, the Bible says, our best deeds on our best day are but filthy rags in the sight of God. Think about what God did in sending Jesus for you. The coming of Jesus Christ was the perfect illustration of God's grace. But may I be honest with you? Christmas is often one of the most difficult times for us to extend God's grace to others. Why? One reason is stress. How many of you have ever gotten stressed out in the Christmas season? Yeah? And there are different kinds of stress that happen to us. One of them is calendar stress. We had way too much going on in the Christmas season. 
I've got to be at this party, and I've got to be at this uh, outreach ministry opportunity. I've got to be at church for this. I've got to have the kids at school for their play and production for that. I've got to be here for this thing and there for that thing. And just, just really, really busy. On top of that, you've got to do a lot of shopping. How many got all your shopping done for Christmas? I got a few of them. Let me applaud you, okay? All right. Most of us are like me. It's Christmas Eve. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Stressful, is it not? It's stressful because our calendar. How many ever watched Hallmark movies? Yeah. Have you ever noticed when they're decorating the Christmas tree? It's like, this is so much fun. And when you're at home doing it, it's like, yeah, right? And when they bake those cookies, it's like, oh, I love it. What you're actually doing is like, oh, man, I just wish I had this done. I got to get this over with. And then you go to shop, and the lines are three times longer than they are most of the time during the year, right? How many ever go to Walmart in the Christmas season? Woo! Even the E-Town shopping mall is busy at Christmas. It's busy, right? And then you got to be with these people for this, and those people for that, and this family for this. That leads us to the second reason for stress is family stress. I mean, it's like, ah, I'm going to have to go here for Christmas morning and go there for Christmas afternoon and go there for Christmas evening. If I don't spend enough time with these people, then those people are mad and it's just stressful, right? And if you are a grandparent, you're not really keeping score, but you kind of are. And it's like, the in-laws got more time than I did. What's wrong here? Even on the other end, you're like, okay, i got to make sure everybody gets equal time here. This is difficult. Family stress. On top of that, you have financial stress. Because there's this pressure to buy all this stuff. All these presents. You don't have enough money to buy all these presents. On top of that, we ask for money more during the Christmas season than we do any other time. It's financially stressful. It's stressed out. It's easy to get stressed out. How many of you have any weird relatives? Got to be around them at Christmas. Because in order to be around the relatives you want to be around, you got to hang out with the relatives you don't want to be around. It's like, ah. Somebody told me one out of every three people is weird. Look at the person on your right. Look at the person on your left. If they seem normal, it's you. Just saying. Must have some weird people in the room. This Christmas, let me encourage you. Offer grace. I know those other people don't deserve it. I know they've hurt you. I know they've offended you. I know they're strange. They're weird. I know, I know, I know. But guess what? We've all offended God. Philippians chapter 2 says your attitude should be like the attitude of Jesus Christ. That even though he was God, 
He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect, sinless life, and then die a horrible, torturous, painful, cruel death for your sin and mine. Think about what Jesus Christ did for you. And whatever else somebody else did to you, it's probably not worse than what your sin and my sin did to Jesus. And sometimes, to be honest, we can misunderstand. A woman was waiting in an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shops bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat. Then she sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her bag, she gasped with surprise. There were her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned. In despair, the others were his. And he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Be careful. Always extend grace to those around us, even when they may not seem to offer grace to us. Listen to this beautiful passage on grace from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we saw His glory, the glory of Jesus, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that's John the Baptist, John the one who baptized Jesus, testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, say it with me, we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me encourage you this Christmas to grow in grace. 
Somebody's going to be rude to you. I'm just telling you, it's going to happen. When that happens, here's what you do. Say, Lord, this is my opportunity to grow in grace. Somebody's going to cut you off in traffic. And you're going to honk that horn. But say to yourself, Lord, say to him, Lord, this is my opportunity to grow in grace. Your kids and grandkids are going to spend more time with the outlaw, I mean in-laws, than they are with you. Say to the Lord, this is my opportunity to grow in grace. You're going to buy somebody a really, really, really nice present, and they're going to give you hardly anything. Remember, this is your opportunity to grow in grace. And as you grow in grace, you know what happens? God is able to pour out more of His grace upon you because you're able to receive that grace. And God is pleased. And God says, I will offer you. As He offers to all of us, but we're able to receive it more, I believe. His grace. And we put ourselves in a position to experience the grace of God in greater measure. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all blown it. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, You've blown it big time. Some of you enjoyed that too much. We've all blown it. We've all failed. Every single person who ever walked the face of this planet other than Jesus Christ has blown it. If we deserve anything, it's death and hell. Separation from God forever. Yet Jesus Christ said, I offer you my grace. Isn't that incredible? Romans 3.24 says, And we all are being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1 and following says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have received access by grace, it says earlier, through faith in Him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that incredible what God did for you in Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now here's the problem. We have sometimes. We don't want to have an abundance of grace for every good deed. No, we want to get back at others instead of extending grace. It's natural. Sometimes I feel that way. We all want to receive an abundance of grace and mercy. However, we don't always want to extend an abundance of grace and mercy. But do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Do you want to experience the mercy and the grace of God? Then by God's grace, you be a person of mercy. You be a person of grace. You be a person who extends that to others. Whether they extend that back to you or not, let's make it a goal this Christmas. Remember what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and extend that grace to others. I got to be honest, it's not going to be easy. It might be almost impossible. But here's the good news. You don't do it in your own power. You do it in the power of your God. 2 Peter 1.3 says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And as you do that, and I do that, and we do that together, it's an amazing thing. So let's do that, especially now in the Christmas season. Would you pray with me?